Hello and welcome to Carl's Interviews in podcast form. This is an audio extraction of the live interviews that I've conducted with some absolutely fantastic guests from all walks of life with a common theme of being truly inspiring and I cannot wait for you to hear their story. I hope you enjoy. Hello and welcome to another of Carl's interviews. Today I'm joined by friend and legend that is Sharon Davies. Really lucky that last year, just before COVID started, Sharon kindly came down and helped with the Breast Cancer Fundraiser event and we've stayed in touch ever since. Sharon, as many of you will recall, kind of paved the way for a number of female swimmers over the last generation. Olympic medalists, multiple medalists across European, Commonwealth and Worlds, Sharon tells us about how she got into swimming, some of her highs and lows, and a number of her views as well on sport today. Sharon, I've got to ask though, um, was swimming always your sport of choice growing up? Um, it's one of those things. I think lots of people do lots of different things. You know, and the, the advice that I give to any, any parent that's got children that they want to get involved in sport, and sport is such a wonderful thing for kids to do, physically and mentally, um, is just... Just try different things. Give them lots of options. And that's exactly what my parents did. I live very close to the swimming pool, so they wanted me to learn how to swim for safety reasons. But I also um, used to love riding ponies because I lived in Plymouth and Dartmoor wasn't very far yeah. away. Um, I did ballet because my mum had done ballet. I have to say I was never very good with musical instruments. It's one of the things that I've always wanted to be able to pick up a guitar, but <laughs> never been able to do that. I don't have that, that talent. Not um, even a lockdown so, hobby, potentially, for this time around, then? Yeah, maybe. Maybe. <laughs> maybe not. I'm not sure I've got the patience. Um, so, yeah, it's, it, it's just something really took over. You know, I was doing all these different sports, and I'm just absolutely the perfect shape and size for swimming. Yeah. I'm tall. I have long levers. I have big hands and big feet, relatively. I mean, not hugely so, but, you know, I I'm, I'm, was 5 foot 11. I'm definitely shorter than that now. I'm probably <laughs> closer to 5 foot 9 and a half these days. Um, and I had size eight feet, and so they are your paddles, you know. So just the same as you would get gymnasts that are shorts that they can yeah. tumble, you know, swimmers tend to be quite long, so you have long levers and long paddles. Long bodies, short legs is the absolute perfect. Someone like Michael Phelps, again, is the absolute perfect shape. Yeah. And so although I found swimming, swimming found me, it was the thing that I was absolutely made to, to do, and I just improved very quickly. And by the time I was 11, I was... Devon County senior champion and competing for England junior and then at 13 I was at my first Olympic Games so you know I don't really remember doing an awful lot else from about <laughs> 10 from about 10 years of age swimming was my focus and we've obviously got to and I don't want to dwell on it too much because it's still um I've been sent last time when you spoke about it obviously I'm going to bring up Petra now and that um mm -hmm. the faithful final so I suppose for anyone that's not aware, if you can talk a little bit about that, um, the 400 final at the um, 78 Olympics and then kind of what happened and then the uh, admission and revelation later, if you will. Yeah, so um, 1980 Olympics, because all of our Olympics are, are <laughs> even numbers, but, you know, that's just, you knew, you meant that. Um, I'd obviously been to the 76 Olympics, so I had that yep. lovely experience. And then the big build-up towards the 1980 Olympics. Now, all of my sporting career, the first time around, I had to compete against East Germans. 
And East Germans, as we know now, and in fact, we knew at the time, were involved with a state-run doping program. And it was a particularly nasty state-run doping program because it was very much aimed at young girls. It was aimed at giving them quite nasty testosterone as to runnable whilst they were going through puberty so that they could develop male strength and male physique and male lung capacity and all the things which, which we know makes males stronger and faster than female athletes. And um, it just had meant that they had this huge advantage on us. You know, we would turn up at major events and they would have three brand new athletes we'd, we'd never seen before who were breaking world records. And it was just very frustrating because they were so successful in the women's events and not very successful at all in the men's events. And they totally dominated for a period of nearly 20 years, which you know, covered four stroke five Olympic Games, the last Olympic Games being I think 88, the, I think we were in Seoul um, before the war came down in 89. So that pretty much covered the whole of my first career. So all my medals, you know, major events where there were East Germans were silvers and bronzes against East Germans. Commonwealth Games where I didn't have to compete against East Germans and I just had to take on Australians who were obviously very strong at swimming. Now I had golds, but it was yeah, just really frustrating for me that that was, was my era. You can't even imagine now with the amount of testing that goes on that anything that would ever happen again, would you? I mean, I think when I was looking into it, in that one Olympics, she got broke five world records and won her event in the 400 by 10 seconds. Something should have run an alarm bell then, really, shouldn't it? Yeah, I mean, you know, and it did. You know, people involved in the sport, that's the thing which is ridiculous, is that people now think that, that those days it was all going on secretly. It wasn't going on secretly. We were extremely aware of what was happening and that it was not... It was just not possible for a country to dominate, a small country like East Germany, to dominate women's sport the way that they did and not have the same success in men's sport if what they were doing in training was so good. Yeah. And also they looked like men and they sounded like men and they had physical, you know, bodies like men, deep voices, five o'clock shadows, um, bad acne, you know. I mean, and it was so sad because these girls really were just used as pawns because the the drugs that they were given had very nasty negative side effects, which they've had to live with for the rest of their lives. So I've always felt that the people that really let them down was the IOC and the international bodies, FINA, Athletics Association, who did absolutely nothing about this. You know, they even had people defecting with the little blue pills and they still chose to ignore it. They chose to put East German doctors on their international doping panels. They had no out-of-season out testing. They had no out-of-competition testing. Um, they wouldn't obviously, you know, turn up in the middle of East Germany in the middle of winter and just test them. So what the East Germans were doing was making sure that they would pass the test before they would leave the country, before they would leave Dresden. Yeah. If they weren't going to pass the test, and they just sent another athlete. And obviously, you can remove testosterone from the system and take other drugs to mask it, mask it quite easily. And all the benefit of the testosterone is still there, but the actual drug has been reduced. So, you know, you're just not going to be able to, to find it. Um, so, it, it, yeah, it was just incredibly, incredibly frustrating that nothing was done for such a long time. And we're still having a battle, aren't we, you know, against drugs in sport. You know, it's never going to go away because, sadly, sport reflects society and in society yeah. we have cheats and so we would have cheats in sport um and i just would like to see bigger deterrence you know i would like to see people not get away with two years or seconds bans i think if you know maybe we could give somebody four year bans for the first offense but if they're caught again i just think they should be absolutely 100 percent out you know it's yeah, it's and coaches, anyone that's encouraging youngsters, you know, should never be allowed anywhere near young athletes ever again if it's proved that they've been trying to, to you know, influence their athletes or pass drugs up. So 
yeah, we just need to have better, better deterrents and better ways of catching people. I suspect there's a lot of people out there agree with that as well. And how did you, as an athlete, then? Because obviously you're training really hard. You know the ability you're at. How do you motivate yourself to keep going and performing when you've got these obvious cheats and performing that? Were there times you found things really difficult to motivate yourself to continue? Yeah, except for I still wanted to compete. You know, I was a natural born competitor. It was yeah. my sport. It was what I was good at. Um, even though you know that you've you've got these people to beat, which is pretty much impossible to do, no matter how hard you train, no matter how good you are. I mean, I set the British record in the 400 metres individual medley, and in fact, the Commonwealth record as well. Commonwealth record stood for nearly 12 years, and the British record stood for over 20 years. So, you know, I was trying to do my best to... and And if you take away the 9%, which is what the average was that they were able to improve. So all of their paperwork, which we saw once the wall came down, was showing that they could make about on average a 9% improvement. So wow. some were slightly left, some were slightly yeah. more. But nine was the average. If you took 9% away from the girl that beat me, it would have put her 18 seconds behind me. Wow. And, yeah. <laughs> so it means you can take a very average athlete and make them yeah. an amazing world champion. Because nine, you know, 9% at world level is just huge. Phenomenal. Absolutely yeah. huge, yeah. Well, you said about the obviously the British records, and if my facts are right here, you've got to hopefully I've got them right. British champion on twenty-two separate occasions, over two hundred British swimming records and five masters records. Is that right? Yeah, but it was over a period of time, you know. Over, and because I well, was it's still pretty remarkable, yeah. <laughs> but because I was an IM, my individual medley swimmer, so yeah. butterfly, backstroke, breaststroke, freestyle, in that order, then obviously I would go and compete at all these different things. So I would be able to break the British record on the two hundred backstroke, which is what I swam for Great Britain first time at the Olympics in, and obviously a two hundred and four hundred IM, and then I'd be part of the British relay team, so the four by two hundreds and the four yeah. by one hundred freestyles, and I had the British record at one stage in all of the freestyle events, short course. And so it was, my dad always used to look at the world rankings. He would never look at British times. And he would always say to me, if you want to be the best in the world, we're looking at the Americans or we're looking at the Canadians or we're looking at the Australians, you know, and he would yeah. sort of say, this is what they're doing. This is where you need to be. So, um, yeah, you know, he was quite tough. I mean, I was 11, I fell out of a tree and I broke both my arms. So both bones in both arms. And I walked home and walked into the kitchen because I, I was there by myself. And he just said, oh, Sharon, look after that arm with the other one. I said, no, I think I've broken that one too. So it looked like, looked like yeah, Z's, you know, so I knew I'd done something. Put them in plasters and had to have them rebroken and replastered. And about one week later, my dad said, well, you've missed a week's training. And I said, I know. He said, well, that's not very good, is it? He said, are you in pain? And I said, well, no, not anymore, Dad. And I had these plasters from my wrist all the way up to my shoulders. And so we went to Tesco's, picked up a load of plastic bags, he wrapped them and sellotaped them around, and I just carried on training for three months with <laughs> broken arms. So, you know, and at no stage was I in pain, but it, yeah. it did teach me that our bodies are amazing and you can, yeah. you can, it's incredible what you can do, as you well know, you know, 10, <laughs> 10 marathons in 10 days. Most people would go, oh my goodness, but you did it. No, not quite the same as swimming with two broken arms. And I'd argue as well, did, did your dad, in, did he in later years admit he might have been a bit tough on you or was it all for your own good and never forgiven? Yeah, I mean, weirdly, that, that wasn't the toughest thing that he did. I think the toughest thing he did was in 79, just pre before the Olympic year, we had the Russians in Afghanistan and Mrs. Thatcher was trying to get us to boycott the Olympics. Yeah. So everybody was training, not knowing whether we were going to get to go. We were having no funding from the government at that time whatsoever, no lottery funding. The, Britain was still trading with the Russians, but they were just saying, well, the athletes should pull out of the Olympic Games. So it, it was very disheartening. 
Um, and we didn't know if we were going to get to go. And just prior to Christmas, I got a virus. And of course, I'm like a broken arm. You can't see a virus. You know, you just don't have the time even though it's there. And so it was really difficult. And he just kept on pushing and kept on pushing. And one of his little lines was, he'd always say to me, Sharon, I'd like you to do, for example, um, 10 times 100 meters freestyle. And I want you to swim and rest in 80 seconds. And I want you to hold 65. And then right at the end of that sentence, he would say, you probably can't do it but give it a go. <laughs> and it was his way of going, go on, I dare you. Yeah. And because he said I couldn't do it, I would always prove him wrong and do it. And he knew that, it was a little bit of a game. Yeah. But when I had this virus, I couldn't do it. You know, and I just couldn't understand where my strength had gone, why I was tired all the time. Um, yeah, it was, it was really difficult. And I think when you can see a problem, it's much easier to be able to fix course, it than yeah. when you can't see a problem. You know, viruses and, are just the worst to deal with. And, yeah, it's, you know, talking of viruses, you know, we come back, back round into this full <laughs> circle of where we are right now. And obviously some people we can see have the virus and they're incredibly poorly and other people, you know, get it and don't even realise they get it. It's just, yeah, horrible. It's, and obviously you finished um, and took a break from swimming, didn't you, to try to pursue other careers, then came back and gave it another go. So what encouraged you to come back into swimming for your second phase, if you like? Yeah, it's, so it's not quite as easy as that. The story's not quite as simple as that. So what happened was after Moscow 1980, I'd been training for nearly 10 years and I just needed a break. But in those days, you couldn't take a break. So I took a scholarship to Berkeley University in America. I was very keen that it was an academic scholarship. Mm -hmm. I was going to a good university. I wanted to go to an Ivy League university. I had a great training program there. They had a female coach, which I thought was wonderful. Um, got there and just found that I was very jaded. But to maintain my scholarship, I had to swim. So I then was in this difficult situation where I needed a break. My parents' marriage broke up and my mum was really struggling. So I thought, right, well, I'll come home. Um, and I got offered a TV show called Give Us a Clue. Yeah. And I was doing some presenting for some kids' TV. And um, because I received £40 for this TV programme, I was branded a professional. And I wasn't allowed to compete anymore. So it wasn't wanting to stop. It was told that I'd received £40 and I wasn't allowed to race. And what was really frustrating for me again was that the same time that I was branded a professional for £40, Sebastian Coe and Steve Overt were racing each other every single weekend, being paid a lot of money, of which was going into a trust fund, which was then buying them a car and a house and winter's training abroad. And so athletes were being totally being treated differently to swimmers. So I got made professional and thrown out of my sport for 40 quid, whilst they carried on and raced each other all over the world and all over Europe every weekend. Really difficult. And it took eight years before they brought trust funds into swimming. So in 1988, I was at the Olympic Games in Seoul and I was sharing a flat with, with the lovely Mary Peters. And Mary Peters said to me, well, if you've, if you've got this thing in your life that you've not quite finished, then don't say what if, get back in and do it again. So after eight years out, I started all over and got back in and did it again. So I did my first Olympics at 13 and my last competing Olympics, which was 92, I was pretty much 30. So it was over three decades and three different Olympics, yeah. Wow. No, no, no medal. Came home with a husband because he pulled his hamstring and I felt very sorry for him. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, different trophies. <laughs> <laughs> that, that is one of the events of that Olympics people do remember, don't they? And his dad running onto the track as well. Yeah, absolutely. And it was a very genuine moment. You know, how on yeah. earth Jim got onto the track, I will never know because the security is extraordinary. So it was one of those just total spontaneous moments where he felt for his son 
and somehow he pushed his way onto the track and picked him up. And by picking him up, he actually disqualified him. <laughs> but, you know, not that he was ever going to get, get through to the final on that time anyway. Um, yeah. Yeah, really frustrating for Derek because Derek was an incredibly talented athlete who just seemed to have, you know, one injury after the next injury. And it was often hamstrings with him yeah. and Achilles. And in that particular instance, it was a, a hamstring that he tore right in the middle of the race when he was running really well. So, yeah. But it, having said that, you know, I know it's, it's an irony, but people will remember forever that piece of Olympic history. Whereas yeah. if he picked up maybe a silver or a bronze medal, he would have just been another Olympic medalist, of which there are, you know, many every Olympic Games. Yeah. That's a special moment which will we'll live forever. And since you've retired from swimming, you've been, I suppose, very lucky actually to be the first person that nearly every single one of our swimmers coming out the pool gets to meet regardless of their success. And it's one of the things, actually, that a lot of the swimmers that I've interviewed have always said about you as well. And Becky, Becky particularly said she's cried on you and with you so many oh, times. God. I know. <laughs> I am so privileged to be in that position. You know, I have been on the side of the pool now for 25 years. So I was in my sport for 23 years, and I've now been on the side of the pool for 24 years. And uh, my first Olympic Games for the BBC was 96. And I was working before that for um, New Zealand radio and for other different media sort of outlets. So I've been to every sing single Olympic game since, since 1976. Wow. Um, but Paul's life with BBC since 96, which was Atlanta. And it's such a privilege to be able to be that person. You know, and I, I kind of had a eureka moment, I guess, when I was watching Mark Spitz in 1972 with his seven gold medals with his yeah. handlebar moustache and his big row of medals. And <laughs> yeah. I was only nine, ten years old. And when I was interviewing Michael Phelps, when he became the most decorated Olympian in history after his 18th gold medal, we were in London. We were standing next to NBC. BBC were host broadcasters, so we were at the front of the queue, which we never are, because normally we're like so far down the line, it's ridiculous. Um, but they said, look, we're not live, Sharon. If you'd like to speak to Michael first, then, you know, you're welcome. So I got to be the first person in the world to speak to Michael wow. Phelps when he became the most decorated Olympian in history. So I felt like my whole life had done this massive 360-degree you know, <laughs> circle, and it was very special. I thoroughly enjoyed London. But every Olympics has a, has a, a feel about it, you know, has a real yeah. atmosphere, whether it's uh, 2000 when we're in Sydney and it's the first Games Makers and it's the first Green Olympic Games and we're trying to be very, we're trying to recycle everything and do everything correctly. Or whether it's Beijing where China is trying to show to the world and they're spending a huge amount of money or, you know, whether it's Athens and we're celebrating a hundred years and people didn't think we were ever going to get the pools finished or the underground done, but we did and we were competing in front of the Acropolis. Every Olympics has something unique and special about it. Do you ever find it challenging? Because obviously you get to speak to them so quickly. Um, others obviously have a bit more time to reflect on the race, to prepare, whereas a lot of what you do is quite raw, isn't it? Do you ever find it challenging depending on how they've performed, what to discuss and go through? Yeah, I mean, it's not difficult because I think the secret is to listen with interviews. Um, for me, it's very lucky because I know exactly how they feel. Yeah. So I want to bring their personality over because I think swimming always struggles with the fact that we look like eight people with hats and goggles on going down the pool and often we can look the same. Yeah. And so I want to try to bring over the fact that these athletes all have, you know, they're all quirky, they're all different, they're, they've all got something to say for themselves and they've all worked incredibly hard and deserve to have some proper face and airtime. And they don't get it very often. So I'm, I'm very keen to try and make sure that I can, you know, give them a voice yeah. um but you're right you know when when becky won her medals in 
in, in Beijing, I was in floods of tears, you know, and I, I get to give her a hug or I get to steal some Cadbury's chocolate, which I bring for her, you know, and smuggle to her on the side of the pool or things like that. And those are all really special little moments. And again, I get to share special moments at the moment with Adam, you yeah. know, this, this supreme breaststroke athlete that's, well, you know, that will probably never, never see the likes of it again. Um, yeah, it's, it's very, and at the same time, sometimes when things don't go right, you know, I get to ask them that awkward question as well, what happened? Um, yeah. I always try to finish my interview with something positive. Yeah. Because I think no matter how bad the swim was, no one has turned up and done six hours a day and got up at five o'clock in the morning to swim badly for their country. Yeah. You know, everybody wants to, to lead their best performance. And if it doesn't happen, there's usually a reason. But ultimately, they certainly haven't done it deliberately. So I always try to, to find some positive to finish an interview with. I think that really comes across as well. And the fact that you've been there yourself, so you've had those early mornings, you've had the training sessions, the good of the bad and success. It puts you in a unique place compared to a lot of other commentators because you, you can empathise and feel it. Uh, and they must respect and share that as well because for the, the generation like Becky, they'd have grown up watching you swim and then getting into it themselves. Yeah, the sad truth is none of them have grown up watching me swim. <laughs> <laughs> it was way too long ago. <laughs> They've heard about it from their parents. Yeah. <laughs> um, or they've seen me doing Amazon on Gladiators or they've seen me presenting the big breakfast. You know, it's it's something else, to be honest with you. But, yeah, they, they know. They, they they know that I've been there, bought the T-shirt, and I've done the six hours a day. I've done the hard work. And, you know, I've, I've lived the same experience as them. And I've actually got their – they are my priority. You know, if, if they need to go and get a swim down, then as far as I'm concerned, they have to go and get a swim down. I'm there as a journalist, and I will always try to get a very, very quick comment off of them. But my priority, whether it's, you know, Duncan Scott or Fred Anderson or whoever, our men's relay team, whatever, if they need to go and get a swim down so we're going to get the best performance out of them, then I am going to push them to go and do their swim down rather yeah. than trying to make them stay with me and, and do live television. Because sometimes with live television, we are waiting. So I've got, you know, the guys lined up in front of me and I've got someone talking to me in my ear and they may be somewhere else in the studio and they want to talk to the swimmers, but they're just keeping them hanging there. And obviously, right after they finish racing, they know they need to go and swim down, get rid yeah. of the lactic acid, get prepared, get rested, get ready for the next race. So I'm thinking I need to let these guys go because they need to go and do what they need to do rather than hanging on to them, you know, by their costumes and saying, you must stay, you must stay. So, yeah, that's, that's always the way that I'm going to be. You've obviously, which is really handy for me, actually, you've mentioned about the Gladiator Big Breakfast because who's the next bit I was going to go on to? So how did the Gladiators opportunity even come about for you? Um, so Derek had been working on the show and I had been turning down Nigel Lithgow for about two and a half years at this point. And I presented Train to Win, which was the kids version with Daley Thompson. Really good. Okay, yeah. And Nigel just kept asking me and asking me. And I kept saying no, because I was dead keen to just remain Sharon Davis, the swimmer. And this show was just huge. You know, it was Saturday night, 18 million people. The days when we really only had four channels and people yeah. would all sit down on a Saturday evening before they put the kids to bed or before they went to the pub or went out or whatever they did, they'd all seem to watch this together. And so it was just ginormous. Um, Derek had then taken a coaching job on at the time. And so we were pretty much away most of the summer up at the NIA in Birmingham training and, and um, you know, filming because they would film yeah. two shows a day and they would knock it all off during the summer holidays so we could have the, the audience. Um, and I just thought, well, I'm here anyway. So if I can't beat them, I just go join them. So eventually, I think on the third year of asking, I said yes. And that's when I became Amazon. 
And sadly, at the end of the first series, I, I snapped on my cruciate ligament in my right knee. And so that was it, really. Which lasted about a year and a half. Um, and I had to have nine subsequent operations on my right knee to, to fix it. Yeah. Quite a painful memory that experience then. Well, it was a difficult show. You, you wouldn't get it through health and safety nowadays. No. You know, it just would not be allowed to happen because it really was quite dangerous. We were yeah. throwing people off 40-foot pyramids, you know, and it wasn't the fact that you, you can throw yourself off a 40-foot pyramid, no problem. Yeah. But if you fall off with somebody, that was when the of accidents course. would happen because you'd get entangled and someone would fall on something, and it could be a knee or it could be a neck. And yeah. so we had quite a few serious accidents, and eventually it got it got removed. And even when they tried to to reinvent it and put it on Sky, it just didn't have the jeopardy that it had the first time. And so it, you know, and it didn't have the crowd, so it never really yeah. took off the same way. And then how did the big breakfast opportunity come about then? Um, that came off the back of working at the Olympics in 96. Um, so I was out in Atlanta and they decided that, that um, Gabby and Chris said that were gonna lead the show and they wanted to find some new people to do it. And I just got asked to do it and it was, I, we were doing it in their style, I guess, in a way. Yeah. And, and I think the TV station wanted to change the way that they were doing it. And so they had Denise Van out and, and they had a totally different idea that they were going with. And I was working with Vanessa. And and in the end, I just got very upset that I was getting up at three o'clock in the morning to go on and do a show that I was learning the night before because we had it was live for three hours and we had no auto cue. So it was, it was incredibly wow. difficult. You had to just do everything off the seat of your pants. Great learning curve. Um, <laughs> but we would often have people that would come down to do an interesting article. We had a young girl that had done some amazing swim or run, and she was running for charity. And then they would just bump her to play the Spice Girls again for the hundredth time that morning. And I just kind of needed more credibility with it. Yeah. And I lost, you know, I just didn't really want to do it anymore. And I think that was probably coming across at times. And it is very <laughs> tough. I mean, there's no yeah. doubt about it. It's tough to get up at 3.30, 4 o'clock in the morning, especially when you have young children. I had a son who was three or four, I think, at the time. And it was exhausting. And I got bronchitis, which I'd never got before in my life because, you know, I was just not getting enough sleep. And so, yeah, it was, but it was, it was a great learning curve. I mean, it, you know, gosh, yeah. Doing nine months, nearly a year of three hours of live television every single morning, you know, was, yeah, a, a lot of learning. <laughs> and what I'd also like to talk about sort of more currently now as well is um, you do a lot of work to try and help uh, disabled sports, sports foundations, and really encouraging people. So can you tell those that are watching and those that will catch up a little bit about some of the roles you do there and the important part you play there? Yeah, well, I've been involved with Special Olympics especially. So that is for young people that have with mental challenges. Um, and then also the Paralympics, I was involved when they were, before it ever became an Olympic sport, when it was at Stoke Mandeville. So that long ago. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I'm just a big believer in sport. You know, I think sport is so important in life. And at the moment, our young children are desperately missing yeah. sport and being physically active. They're not getting enough physical activity in the same way that they're, they're not, you know, getting the schooling in that they should be getting. They're all doing their very best and parents are trying incredibly hard, me included. But we're not, you know, we're no way can we replace proper school. And my son is 13 years old and he misses his peers. He misses other boys. He misses his rugby. You know, he's, we, we go in the gym and we get on a bike, but it's not the same. Um, and so sport has taught me focus. It's taught me determination. It's taught me teamwork. It's taught me ethics. It's, 
in, as well as teaching me how to stay physically fit and being physically fit and, and releasing those endorphins when I exercise also then helps my mental fitness and the ability to cope. And I think we need to, to think about how we can try to make our children more resilient. Because one of the things that's possibly lacking with young people, which has been brought on by social media, you know, social media has so much that's wonderful about it, but so much which is corrosive and dangerous. And one of those things is how it captures children and intoxicates them and stops them from just building dens and being kids. Yeah. You know, and it's very hard as a parent to limit screen time and, you know, and limit social media and, and not to let them be affected by what they think everybody else is doing. Yeah. Because actually what everybody else is doing is just fake. It's just what people want you to think that they're doing. So everyone at home is thinking everyone else's life is so much better than theirs, but it really isn't, you know? It's, and we stopped being communities and started to try and live online. So although the world is supposed to be joined together by social media, I think social media is more responsible for making us isolated than ever before. It's really because there are a lot of people actually would definitely agree with that. And it's the generations gone. So my generation before would finish school and go out and play, wouldn't they? They would do sports, be more active, build that camaraderie, as you say. Um, how do we get it back then? How do we try and encourage people to get back out? Obviously, lockdown aside and engage in more sports, team or singular. Yeah, I think we need to prioritise activity. I think it's terribly important in a world where obesity rates are going up, diabetes yeah. rates are going up. You know, they affect things like COVID. They affect our mental health. They affect how much it costs the National Health Service. So these are all things that we really, really need to address. And we need to say we have to draw a line somewhere in the sand that says we have to understand that physical activity is really important. And probably primary school, you know, is the first place that we need to instill in kids the, the habit of physical activity. Now, that doesn't have to be competitive. You know, I'm not suggesting right. that everyone wants to win a race because not everybody does. But we can be physical active, whether that's with dance and movement, you know, whether that's creating very inclusive kind of activities, uh, whether that's just going for, you know, an 800-mile jog around the playground in the morning. Um, other countries can do it. Other people can do it. There is no reason why we can't do it too. And do you think as well that, schools encourage enough swimming swimming is one of the sports that saves a life you know it is part of the national curriculum more children are supposed to be able to swim 25 meters by the time they leave primary school and at the moment only about 50 percent are doing that and we have seen an increase in the number of people that have drowned in this country um, over the last few years particularly last summer when we were you know all being captive and, <laughs> and the weather was really good as well yeah. so people were going off and probably swimming in places that they shouldn't be swimming in um, but we're an island, you know, with rivers and canals all over the place. Our kids most definitely should be able to swim. And it's a lovely sport to be able to do for the rest of your life. You know, whether you're pregnant, whether you're disabled, whether you're old, you know, whether you're recovering from an injury, it, it, it enables you to, to have that, that skill. So I do believe that it's very important that our kids can, can actually swim. And I know it costs money and I know getting kids to, to local pools takes time, but I do you think it's it's important i really do no I, I couldn't agree more i think it's fantastic school and as you say it's you go to your pool and there are a complete mixture of people you've got those sort of athletes swimming down but then i mean my grandma swims at nearly 90 i, I swam and recovering for a knee injury and it is a fantastic leveler but a, a great sport as well for all yeah and also it's one of those sports which if somebody is a little bit overweight 
they can get themselves in the pool and feel like yeah. they can hide. You know, so it, it maybe can break that chain where people go, well, I'm not fit enough to go in the gym or I can't put lycra on or people are going to be judging me. But nobody gets judged in a swimming pool. You know, I, I can tell you from the bottom of my heart in this country, swimming clubs across the whole country are very inclusive, very welcoming, and we love our sport and we want to share it. And so getting people involved in, you know, in swimming is, is something. And I, I am in despair over the fact that at the moment about 25% of our swimming pools look very much like they will not be opening after COVID is over. And we're already, you know, underfunded and under-resourced if you compare us to most other European countries when it comes to swimming pools. With getting into swimming then, if you're um, a, a youngster watching or people who've got kids, can they arrive at swimming clubs at any level? Do you need to be at a certain standard to begin? No, absolutely. I mean, most swimming clubs will, will have a teacher training, you know, have a coaching, teaching program just the same. So you can move through the clubs. Some clubs are obviously better than others at certain yeah. things. So some might be fantastic teaching clubs and some might be very high-end competitive clubs. And at the moment, where our elite swimmers are still training. So our university setups like Loughborough, Bath, mm -hmm. Stirling, these guys are still actually still got British swimmers in the water right now. So our elite program, you know, is still going ahead, um, albeit we're, we're joining the dots a little bit and it's not been easy. And the only competition that our swimmers had was with the International Swimming League ISL last year, which went on for about six weeks, which has been funded by a, a Ukrainian oligarch who wanted to set up some sort of competition to Tofino, which is our own swimming body. Um, there's not been a lot of competing. You know, 2020 is going to be a very difficult year for competition and 2021 is starting the same way. Um, I just got every finger and toe crossed at the moment that the Olympic Games in Tokyo will actually go ahead. And if you wanted my honest opinion, will they? I think they will. Okay. But I still believe we might end up with a spectator-less Olympic Games where yeah. everyone that's go, you know, goes is expected to have a vaccination because if I was Japan and I had just cleared out most of the virus i would not necessarily be very excited inviting the whole world in you know um, so i think to invite the athletes in and the coaches in and the support staff and the media in to say yes we want you there but you have to be vaccinated is not unreasonable and then if someone is very very anti the vaccine that's the choice they will have to make but me personally i will be having the vaccination if it means i can be on the side of the pool with my microphone and i'll be very happy about it <laughs> that's it Clearly, that was going to be my last question to ask whether you thought this would go ahead. And it's interesting, you said about obviously every Olympic Games have a different feel. I can only begin to imagine how it would feel if there were no spectators there, literally just the media and coaches. Yeah, you say that though, you know, and I was having this discussion with my dad yesterday and I said to him, but I don't believe it will make any difference. Because okay. when I competed in Moscow to win my Olympic silver medal, I was in a stadium with 10,000 people. Now... 9,991, because my dad was there, <laughs> yeah. were cheering for East Germans. <laughs> yeah. And it didn't make a total distance to me, because at the end of the day, I'm standing there, and I know I've done the work, and I'm just racing the next person. So I think you'll find that even though it, it detracts from the fun atmosphere, which may be yeah. coming across on television, the same as we'd watch, we'd watch football or cricket without any, you know, anybody in the, in the stadium, the actual quality of the racing will still be amazing because someone will still want to be the gold medalist. And if it takes a world record to be a gold medalist, then they will produce a world record. And when the gun goes, you are often unaware of the crowd, particularly in swimming, because our heads are yeah. in the water anyway. Of course. So I don't believe that the quality of the racing will be any worse. And I think, of course, it's going to detract a little bit from the whole story. But, and, and the saddest thing will maybe be that parents won't be able to be there. 
yeah, of course. Maybe that's another rule that, that Japan will slightly flex. They might turn around and go, okay, we can have a very, very small crowd, which we can socially distance, and these will just be the parents of the athletes, so they will get the opportunity to watch their children you know, compete at the Olympic Games. What I don't want to happen is for the Olympics not to happen at all. Because Agreed. people don't understand often that there's sometimes one window for these athletes to win their medal. They only come every four years. And we've already lost about five swimmers from our British team who would have competed last summer, yeah. who just did not have another winter's training in them because they'd been, you know, they were too old and their bodies had worked too hard. And so, it, to, they, you know, just to turn around and go, well, it's a shame, we'll just have to go to the next ones. No, they won't. They won't make it to the next ones. So you're taking away their opportunity to, yeah. to win a medal for something that they've probably worked for 10 or 12 years of their life if we don't get this Olympics this summer. Um, and that would be, you know, incredibly difficult for some people. So, so whether, if it happens without, without spectators, it's a shame, but I would really love it to happen all the same. Yeah. For us as spectators too, because I yes. think it will lift the world having the Olympics. I think it's the party that we need. It's the celebrate, it's the coming out, it's the bringing together of the world that maybe we will desperately need come, come this July. Well, no, I think every single person is behind you with that as well. And if people can't go, just be able to at least watch it, watch these athletes. And also that reward at the end of it for those that have for years and years, as you say, built up and trained, had those early mornings, the extra sessions. But So I'll keep my fingers crossed. Yeah. What number of Olympics will that be for you? To, uh, 13, I think. 12 or, th <laughs> 12 or 13. What does it work out to? Yeah. Um, yeah. 76 was the first one. So quite a few. Wow. I know. Quite a few. <laughs> We did. Um, we won some money fairly recently. We did a thing called Tenable, and our question right. at the end was: um, we had to to mention all the Olympics that had vowels in them or something or other, and we were able to win some great money for all our different charities. And it is it's a great trivial pursuit question for me. Whenever I get a choice, it's always sport, and I'm always hoping they're going to ask me what Olympic Games happened in '96. What Olympic Games happened in? <laughs> I'm not so good on Winter Olympics. So I try. And no, fair enough. <laughs> But yeah, that will be my fingers crossed thing for this summer that, you know, I, I hope that we can get everybody vaccinated and as much as we can, you know, criticise any government around the world for not reacting quick enough. And we are by far not the only ones. Everyone is reacting, you know, and has so much to say after the event. It's easy to be a critic after the event, isn't it? Um, you know, it's, this is something that's never happened before on this sort of scale. But the fact that at the moment we have, you know, we've vaccinated more people and pretty much anyone in the world apart from Israel is something which I think the government do, does need credit and the National Health Service does need credit. And anyone that's watching that's a frontline worker, you know, National Health Service supermarkets, people looking after our streets, people just making sure that life can carry on. You know, thank you very much for doing the most amazing job. Um, and I do hope everyone stays as safe and well as they possibly can be. I'd like if we can to end on a little fun note by you sharing what your family did with your silver medal as a present for you. Oh yeah, well, so <laughs> because my dad was my coach, and also my daughter was competed for England at track and field, and my son was a good rugby player as well, and the young one's not a bad rugby player. So they kind of thought that it was very unfair that the IOC had not fixed my medal, and that something yeah. hadn't been sorted out retrospectively when they knew categorically that yes. the, you know, the girl that beat me had been taking drugs for a very, very long time. So one Christmas, they took the medal and they had it plated and put it under the Christmas tree. I think that was about eight years ago now. Yeah. Um, and I opened it up and there was my Olympic silver medal, all plated in gold. So whenever I take it out, and I take it out regularly because I want people to be able to see it. Yeah. it. I always say to people, just don't, ru you know, don't rub it too hard because I'm going <laughs> to go and get it replated. But yeah, so that's quite special. You know, they, they thought, well, 
if the IRC are going to do nothing about it, then, then we'll do something about it. So when I show people, people go, oh, you won the Olympic silver medal. I go, yeah, but it's, look, it's gold. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I really love that because it's a wonderfully kind thing to do, but richly deserved as well. So it's, I thought it would be a lovely way to finish, to kind of share that story because it made me smile when I first heard it. Oh, thank you very much. And what have you got planned? You, you, you've got all sorts of things that you're wanting to do. <laughs> because you do so many wonderful charity things. You've even done charity things, obviously, throughout this pandemic. You know, you've, you've, you've had to moderate your plans. And, and yeah, it's, and so many people have done so many incredible things, whether it's running marathons or going up and down stairs or, you know, <laughs> walking with their Zimmer frames or whatever they're doing. I've seen so many kids which have, you know, real real challenges that have decided that they're going to do things to try yes. to fill their time something positive i think that's again it's all about trying to find little little things that can make us feel that we are achieving at a time when actually it feels like groundhog day every day massively yeah definitely and it's it is for anyone out there trying to do anything it's just if you can take a positive in these difficult times it's got to be a win for us all isn't it yeah absolutely yeah, I'm, in, I'm enjoying being grandma again. But you know what's <laughs> lovely, though? It's like, you, I know you've got young children, and obviously mine are like 27, 22, and 13. It's, it is nice. It is nice when you're grandma and you can go, oh, she's gorgeous. But here you go. Take a hand. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. I've <laughs> got a few years yet before I can do that. <laughs> so if people want to um, follow and find out a bit more about you or follow your journey, where's the best place for them to get hold of you? Yeah, I'm not brilliant on, on social media i do twitter that's about the yeah. only thing that i do do you know i have a facebook account and i have an instagram account and as you know i'm absolutely rubbish on instagram and i've been told all the time i'm supposed to use instagram but i just load social media i do twitter because i kind of have to it's my career yeah. I, I live in the world of of you know uh, of television and, and corporate work and pr and marketing and so on so i i need to do it to a degree and i do get myself in trouble sometimes because i have the courage of my convictions. I just, yes. <laughs> we all can't just be virtual signalers and, you know, just sit on the fence all the yep. time. Sometimes we have to have the courage of our convictions. And, and so, yeah, Twitter is the place that I do that. I, I would definitely second that. Anyone that um, does follow Sharon, you'll see and notice you're, you're certainly not shy in your opinions or views on things. Yeah. I try to be fair. You know, no, I, of I course. don't think I ever have a, too slanted i try really hard whenever i'm watching news and i do it the same with all of my children i've always said to them you have to look at both sides mm -hmm. and you have to do your own research and we live in a world where pretty much all the media that we're now fed is very agenda driven so we have to as individuals be responsible for finding our own facts and making our own mind up rather than just allowing the media to feed us the latest version that they've got I mean, for me, what I think is quite interesting is, and I use obviously all your views on trans women as, in sport as an example, you, you say what you believe is right as opposed to sometimes what's easy. Because yeah. I can imagine when you're in the public eye as much as you are, it's sometimes easier to just go with the masses and actually to have the courage of your convictions and to say, well, though I don't believe this is right, it must be difficult sometimes, but you get a lot of respect for that as well, I can imagine. Yeah, and it's never because I have an issue with anyone that's, that's trans. No, no, in the of You know, it's just that I believe that sport is very biologically driven. And mm -hmm. having lived that experience where I competed against these Germans who were full of testosterone for 20 years and knowing how dominant they were and yeah. how much difference that meant to women's sports, I just know that it's not fair. 
So until the science is done, which will show that we can eliminate all the male benefits that male biology brings, it is not fair to have male bodies and female races. And that's all my point has ever been. Yeah. Do the science first and then come up with some rules, you know, if that's the case. Personally, I don't think you're ever going to be able to get rid of the male benefits because if anyone has gone through male puberty, they will always have those benefits. And reducing testosterone levels from 10 nanomoles down to 5 nanomoles, you know, when most women are under 1 nanomole, and also people will have benefited from higher levels of testosterone for many years and all the way through puberty, bigger hands, bigger feet, taller, different Q angle, um, more red blood cells, which is obviously more hemoglobin, um, different bone dexterity, all sorts of things which comes with male biology. You can't get rid of all of those. And when we win Olympic medals by hundredths of a second, you can't give away 9% and you can't even give away 2% because it just doesn't make it fair. So women's sport should be protected and women deserve human rights to fair competition and equal opportunities just the same as everybody else. Couldn't agree more. You're definitely not going to get any, any arguments from me about that. We just well, need to find better, better solutions for everybody, don't we? Because yes. I do believe that sport is for all, you know, and if you are transgender, it's sport, sport is for you too. Mm-hmm. We just have to find fair places for everybody. Yeah. Well, Sharon, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, obviously, we met back in February of last year, before even lockdown was a thing, and we couldn't have ever imagined how this next 12 months would be. But um, it's been really fantastic having you on, and um, thank you so much. And to you, uh, Carl. Take care of yourself. Big love to your family, and love to everybody that's, that's that tuned in this evening. And fingers crossed we'll be able to catch up at some stage after lockdown when we're back to some sort of normality. Absolutely. Right, take care. Take Bye-bye. Care. Bye-bye. And that concludes another interview for the day. Thank you to each and every one of you for listening. And as ever, if you have any feedback, send it through to me at my Instagram handle at fighting underscore the underscore dad Enjoy the rest of your day.